following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Psalm 78 is an historic psalm. It's a psalm that speaks of the history of Israel. It is a psalm that Asaph wrote as a reminder to God's people to say, remember your past. Remember what has happened in the life of your forefathers, what has happened in the life of all of the individuals uh, whom you have heard about for the generations. Learn from them, learn from what they have done well, and emulate what they've done well, but learn what they have done poorly and avoid those things. Learn from their mistakes so that you aren't doomed to make the same ones. You see, the key within this passage of Asaph, this long 72-verse psalm, is basically saying this. What are we teaching the next generation? What have we learned from our past? What have we learned from our understanding of who God is, of the redemption that has been afforded to us in Christ? What have we learned about that and have implemented within the context of our personal lives so that we will teach the generations that are currently here and the generations yet to be born, the generations to come? That Asaph is teaching and he says, listen to my words, listen to me and learn, don't be dull, don't be thick-headed, don't be so arrogant that you think there's nothing to learn, but sit and learn in humility, learn from these deep mysteries, learn from these parables, learn from these things so that you can have understanding and then with that understanding live your life in accordance with God's word and then to teach that to those who are around you most especially to the younger generations. And so that's where we come this morning to a history lesson and for some of you I literally just lost you. History lesson. Oh, I remember history in college. It was horrible. I remember history uh, in high school. I hated history. What do a bunch of dead people uh, have to say about my life? We're enlightened now. We don't need all of that old stuff. But the reality is this. The statement is true. If we don't learn from our history, we truly are doomed to repeat it. And our history isn't a great history, by the way, in humanity. We're not really a great race of people. We take advantage of the things that we've been given to. We're ungrateful for the things that we have. Uh, We destroy others. We have uh, silly divisions within our lives. We don't understand how it is that all things are held together uh, by the benevolent hand and the word of an incredibly powerful creative God. And it would behoove us to look to the past and learn. And to go back, I was a history major, I love this stuff. I'm Briar Rabbit in a Briar Patch in reading it. Because we look at the past and we learn from these things. And that's what Asaph is doing. He's drawing us into the past in order to reestablish our understanding and our thinking in the present so that we will live a different way and teach those in the future. You see, here's the reality. Most everything that I think about that's good and profound in my life, I learned from those who were in my life. 
I learned about a husband loving his wife well by watching my father love my mom, watching my grandfather love my grandmother well and care for her. I learned how to wash my hands by my grandfather. I learned how to, he wasn't a farmer, but he grew up uh, with an agrarian background. And I learned how to feel the soil. I learned how to understand how to garden. I learned little things uh, about that from him in those things. I learned a work ethic that would choke most people today from him. I learned from my father a deep, profound love for the church as he was a pastor and suffered for the bride of Christ, of a faith that believed and prayed, of a man who loved what he did, a man who, in my estimation, was silly enough to, when he interviewed for a job at a church, received and accepted the call to the church before ever asking about money because his profound belief was that God will provide. If he calls me to work in a church, he'll provide through that church. I don't need to know what the number is. Now, my mother wasn't quite that way. (laughs) I learned what a godly wife should look like. A mother who pours into her children, who overcomes incredible odds in life and fights against them even into her latter years. A woman in her widowhood who decided in her 70s that living the life of a widow alone in America wasn't really what God had called her to, so she moved to Costa Rica and moved and did mission work for a couple of years there because that's what you're supposed to do. And so I realized and I've learned a lot of things. I look out here and I see some faces of people that have influenced me and influenced my sons. If you ask my sons uh, about who it was that taught them to take off their hat and to look a man in the eye and shake their hands, that man's probably sitting here this morning as they went out and they trained, because that's what men do. And he looked him in the eye and he said, that's what men do. They learned it from me, but it was reinforced by the life of the men and the women around my family. You see, we learn from other people. We learn from the witness of other people. We learn in those contexts. Some of you uh, wonder and ask, why do we allow children to remain in our worship service? The modern trend of churches is that children leave and they have their own worship service. Students have their own worship service. No, we want the kids here to learn how to worship from us. I don't want a bunch of 18-year-olds learning to worship by 18-year-old standards. I want to learn from them and I want them to learn from us. We want them to see us and to ask questions. Why does that silly person raise their hands? Why do you close your eyes when you pray? Why do you take your hat off? Why do you do these things? We want them engaged with all of these things because we learn from being in relationship and challenging the generations that are to come. So the first thing that we're going to look at this morning, and I'm covering a lot of space quickly today, is going to be we must learn from the past. That's the first thing. We're going to learn three things from the past. So the first thing, we're going to learn from the past, and we're going to learn these three things. We're going to learn not to test God. We're going to learn that testing God is wrong and dangerous. We're going to learn that repentance must be genuine, and that we must be careful not to forget God's goodness. That's some of the things that we learn from the past. And then the second major point is just simply application. What do we do with it? So what do we do with these things that we've learned? Uh, And the answer is simply we pass it on to the next generation. We teach the children well in those things. So first, what do we learn from the past? 
Asaph here says, I'm going to teach you with parables and with deep and dark mysteries, uh, things that are hard to understand. Now be careful not to associate parables just with what Jesus did in the New Testament. Jesus used non-historic stories in order to reinforce what a true uh, statement was or what his theological truth was. But a parable, by definition, uh, means para, to come alongside, and balian, to throw, or to put something alongside. And so what Asaph is doing is he is using truly historic fact. These stories are historic stories. They actually happened. But he's bringing them alongside the current life of Israel and saying, learn from them. Put your life in juxtaposition to the history that I'm teaching you. Because we believe that the scripture is the very word of God and that the things proclaimed in it actually happened. That Adam and Eve were actual individuals uh, in the garden. That Noah was an actual historic figure and that the flood actually happened. That there was an exodus event that actually took place. That these are historic events. And so we're looking back at this historicity of the Bible and laying it alongside. And remembering the words of Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. That through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might find hope. And so we're going back. And we're now looking to go, what can we learn from the past? Well, the first thing that we learn from the past is not to put God to the test. Not to put God to the test. Matthew 4, 7 puts it this way. Jesus speaking, do not test the Lord your God. He was speaking to Satan when Satan was tempting him and had taken him up to the pinnacle of a mountain. And Jesus was standing on the pinnacle of the mountain and Satan said, hey, throw yourself off of the mountain because the scriptures say God will send his angels and they will protect you and they'll keep you from being wounded or hurt, which was a true statement. But Jesus said, you're not to take the Lord or make a test for the Lord or put him to the test. He was saying you're not to put yourself in a miraculous situation where only a miracle can save you. God, I'm going to jump out of a boat in the middle of the Pacific and I want you to save me. I have no life preserver and nothing else. God says, don't test me in that way, is what Jesus was saying. And you see, what Israel did was they were willfully putting God to the test, verses 17 to 20. Yet they, that is Israel, sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart, by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? You see, what seems to be the problem here is not what the people expected God to provide what was necessary. That wasn't the problem. That's a reasonable expectation uh, to... God saying, I'm taking you out of Egypt. I'm leading you through the desert. I'll provide for you. And for them to expect God to provide for them. It's not an unreasonable expectation for us in this life to expect God to provide for us. To provide food, for raiment, for life, for opportunity. That he provides these things for us. That's not a wrong thing to expect. A, A son or a daughter It's not an unreasonable expectation to expect mom and dad to provide for them. Is that a wrong expectation? No, and it's not wrong for us as children of God to expect his provision. But here's what was happening. 
for the people what was underlying it within their hearts. Listen, they weren't bold enough to speak it with their voices, but they thought it in their hearts, which is danger enough that the people were dissatisfied with what God had done and they wanted more. There was a sense of ingratitude that they had for what God had provided for them. And coupled in a dangerous concoction and a chemical reaction is coupled with their ingratitude was unbelief. They thought the reason that God did not give them more than what they currently had was because he couldn't. Because he was inept. Because he was incapacitated at some level. You see, the people were in the wilderness and God provided for them in the wilderness. You see, Asaph is going, hey, folks, here's a current problem that we have in our world today. We have a problem of ingratitude. We have a problem of people not being grateful for what God has provided for them. Let me teach you about the problem of ingratitude. And he took them back to Exodus. He said, here's an example in the Exodus event, the story of our people, uh, that when they'd come out of Egypt and they'd gone through the Red Sea and God was providing for them, they got out into the wilderness and they went, "Um, God, we need food. And he said, I'm going to provide food for you. And he said, here's manna. You know what they said about the manna? We don't like manna. We don't want any more manna. I'm tired of manna. Manna, manna, manna. Can I go back to Egypt and get some rice cakes in Egypt? I mean, there were at least plums and prunes and all that kind of stuff in Egypt. Manna, manna, manna. That's all I get in the wilderness. Do you see the ingratitude? That God's people were willing to say, I would rather be in bondage to those people. I would rather be in slavery and eat fig cakes than be freed and under your incredible, miraculous provision. And God was saying, I gave you manna. And he described the manna uh, in this psalm this way, verse uh, 25. It's the bread of angels. I don't know what manna tastes like, but I'd love to have a bite. It's the bread of angels. I don't know what angels eat, or if they eat, but maybe this is just, I don't know what it is, but it's got to be pretty good. And he said, I'm providing it for you. And they said, yeah, you gave us bread. Bet you can't give us water. He goes, I can give you water. And he sent Moses out into the desert and he struck the rock that was in the middle of the desert. And guess what came out? A trickle of water, right? No, it said it gushed out. Rivers flowed out of the rock. He said, I've given you, rock. I've given you water out of a rock. Hadn't tasted that water, but I can only imagine if that's water miraculously created by God from a rock that doesn't produce water at his mere verbal statement, it must have been incredibly refreshing water. And you know what the people said? Wish we had some meat. You can't give us meat. I mean, thanks for the bread and thanks for the water. Sure, it would be nice if you gave us some meat. I said, okay. But he caveats it with this. Verse 21, when the Lord Lord heard of their dissatisfaction, he was full of wrath and fire, was kindled against Jacob, and his anger arose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. And you know what he did? He sent birds. He said, do you want meat? I'll show you meat. Not an vindictive human way. But he said, here's birds. And there were so many birds that they ate. 
but they ate to their own death. Because he said, sometimes when you're not satisfied with what I've given you, when you don't believe that I'm good and that I can do this, I'll give you exactly what you want. And I'll give it to you in such abundance that it will choke the life right out of you. Be careful, friends, what you're asking for and demanding from God for your satisfaction. He may actually give it to you. And that could be a dark day. We live in a country that demanded life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness without restraint. And it's as if God said, fine, you can have it. And I would venture to say that we are no better for it. I would rather have less and more of God than all that we have and so little of him in our culture. So God is saying, be careful to test me. Be careful not to be satisfied with what you have. Think about that in our life. I've said it to you before, and I'm not getting on you if you're in marketing. Good. But here's at the heart of marketing. The heart of a good marketing campaign is to create dissatisfaction in you for whatever you currently have so that you will purchase whatever they're selling. Be dissatisfied with that car that you have. Be dissatisfied with that house that you have. Be dissatisfied with the reflection in the mirror that you have. Be dissatisfied with the clothes. They're not cool enough. And the shoes, they're not cool enough. And the friends, they're not cool enough. And the phone, it's not cool enough. And all the different stuff, they're not what you need. Here's what you need. And we're not satisfied. And it says that God's heart is broken from the dissatisfaction of his people who constantly test him and say things like this. God, if you were really good, if you were really loving, if you were really God, you would fill in the blank. You ever thought that in your heart? Anybody brave enough to raise your hand and say you thought that in your heart? Well, I'm raising my hand. Because I've thought that in my heart. I haven't been bold enough to say it in my prayers. But God says, yeah, I know the heart. I know the heart. So that's what we can learn from the past. Be careful in that it only leads to destruction. It only leads to things getting out of control. Be careful. Learn from this. Because when you do that, it says that God removes, as it were, his hand from his people in that way. That he won't bless, but will curse Another thing that we need to learn from our own past and the past of Israel and the past of the church is that we need to exercise true repentance. That we need to repent. That repentance needs to be a regular part of the diet in the Christian life. Listen to verses 32 to 39. In spite of all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. You kind of look at them and go, guys! And the arrogance of each of us is like, if I'd seen those things, I'd believe. I mean, if I had all that, I would believe. I wouldn't distrust God. So he made their days vanish like a breath, their years in terror. And when he killed them, they sought him, and they repented and sought God earnestly. And they remembered that God was their rock, the most high, their redeemer. Pause. If you stop right there, you go, yes, God disciplined them and that was good because God's discipline in our lives, by the way, is always to lead us to repentance, always to lead us to restoration. There are consequences to our actions within our sinful behavior so that God will turn us towards himself. 
That's why, have you, has anybody ever, I'm trying to get some audience participation here, I'm dying up here this morning, guys. But, uh, how many of you have made a bad decision and suffered a consequence for it? There you go. That's a good thing. The absolute worst thing that could happen is that you suffered no consequence at all for a bad decision. Because if there was no consequence for a bad decision, you would think that bad decision was a good one. Parents, there have to be consequences in your children's lives for the behavior that they have and for the breaking of the house rules. We live in a civil world that should have consequences for behavior. There are consequences, and there are consequences within the divine order as well. And so the people, it looked like they got it. They turned back to God. This is awesome. This is cool. They remembered God most high. Verse 36, though, but they flattered him with their mouths, and they lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast towards him, and they were not faithful to his covenant. Basically what it's saying is they gave him lip service. Okay, I'm busted. If you'll just get me out of this ticket. If if you'll just get me out of this mess. Some of you may be here this morning because of a vow you made last night. God, if you just get get me out of this, I promise that I'll go to church tomorrow morning. And then we become extra spiritual and we add in the biblical word, really. God, I am really sorry. I mean, you know I'm sorry, but no, I'm really sorry. I mean, I'm really, really sorry that I did that. And it would really be great uh, if you could maybe not have all the consequences on me. Uh, And I promise not to do this again ever. I promise. Promise. God, promise. Anybody ever had that conversation with God? Mine was every Thursday in college to my shame. God, forgive me for what I'm going to do this weekend. I knew enough about God to know that what I was about to take part in on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and the hangover and the recovery on Sunday was against him and against his law and against who he was and the impugning of his character. But I was so flippant that I would say, God, forgive me on Thursday for what I'm about to do the rest of the weekend. And every now and then I was so convicted by my bad weekend that I would show up at church hungover and there and go, see God, I was really uh, faithful in all of this. I mean, I'm here. None of my friends are here. I feel better than those boneheads. They're still at the fraternity house. I'm here. Lip service. You see, true repentance is a turning True repentance has within it an honest acknowledgement of my sin. Against you and you alone have I sinned, the psalmist said. Father, I recognize that my sins are against you, and I turn from it. I'm going to make an active and conscious decision to turn from this and turn towards you. It's not a turning from something to nothing. It's turning from something to someone to Christ, to see Him as our fulfillment, to see Him as our flourishing, to see Him as our life, to say, I'm turning from false idols and false lies of whatever this promises me, and I'm turning to you in the midst of that, and I appeal not to my turning. I appeal not to my repentance. I appeal not to the validity of the heartfelt angst that I have, but I appeal only to your grace and your mercy that you would receive me. Because I know that I should be damned. But I know within you is life. Because here's the rest of that passage, verse 38. Yet he being compassionate 
atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. God was compassionate. Remember God's compassion. When you repent, remember his goodness to us. Oh, how nauseating to God the hypocritical repentances that he receives from us must be. J.J. Stewart Perrone, pastor and writer, wrote this. A most striking and affecting picture of man's heart and God's gracious forbearance in all ages Man's sin calling for chastisement, the chastisement producing only temporary amendment, and God's goodness forgotten, yet God's great love never wearied. Repentance needs to be a constant part of our lives. And we'll talk about passing it on in the moments that we have. But parents, do you repent to your children? Is it a part of your diet in life to go, hey, I'm sorry, mom and dad messed up? Husbands and wives, do you repent to one another? If you can't do it on a human level, I promise you, you're not going to do it on an earthly, a heavenly level, a spiritual level. They work together. If repentance is a good part of your spiritual diet, a healthy part of that will also be a part of your earthly diet of humility and of repentance. And then the last thing that we learned from the past is be careful not to forget God's goodness. Be careful not to forget God's goodness. This psalm is broken apart into two big sections. Section 40, uh, verse 40 really begins uh, the repetition of everything that's already been stated, but it's an intensified repetition. And verse 42 is probably the key verse to this passage, if you want to mark it. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. At the heart of their unbelief, at the heart uh, of their testing of God, uh, at the heart of their lack of repentance, was they had forgotten that they were redeemed people. They had forgotten that God had redeemed them from the curse of the law, that God had redeemed them from the power of Egypt, that they had forgotten that he had delivered them out of darkness into light, that he was their God and they were his people. They had forgotten the gospel message. Folks, the most important part of the Ten Commandments is the preamble. It's the verse before the Ten Commandments. And not too many people even know the Ten Commandments to our shame. But even more, we don't know the preamble because this is the preamble. For I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why is that important to have first? You're a redeemed people. Now have no other gods before me. Do not make for yourselves idols. Do not take my name lightly. Honor one day out of seven to worship me. Children, honor your father and your mother so that it would go well for you in your life. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't covet what everybody else has. Don't do all of these things. Why? In order to gain redemption? No, because you're already redeemed. I led you out of the house of Egypt. I led you out of the house of bondage. And you're going, it's never a slave. Don't relate. That's one of those old dusty history books. Folks, we were slaves to sin and death. You were in bondage to it. You were dead, Paul says. You weren't sleeping. You weren't snoring. You weren't catatonic and you weren't comatose. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. But God, rich in mercy, through Jesus Christ, 
came and gave you life not based on your good works and not what he would see you do down the road with his foreknowledge, but in his mercy alone, he said, here's my son for you. I'm going to crush him so I won't crush you. I'm going to destroy him so that I'll never destroy you. And I'm going to take that sin and the debt that you have, and he is going to fully pay it. And I'm going to take his righteousness, and I'm going to give it to you into your account, and you are now fully justified. You are adopted as sons and daughters of the king, that you are glorified in him, and that you have a future secured in him. Never forget that. Did you remember it this morning? Amen, if you did. But for most of us, we just woke up. We walked out into a kitchen that had dishes from last night. In a mirror that lies. In a scale that doesn't tell the whole truth. That's not the sum of who we are. So we have to wake every single morning and preach the gospel to ourselves to say, this morning, I am deeply loved by my Creator and my God who redeemed me from the curse of the law, who brought me out of Egypt at the very cost of His firstborn Son. And He has blessed me with so much more than heavenly manna and heavenly birds and water from a rock. He has given me the bread of life, Christ, and the very flesh that is mine, and His blood which atones for all of my sins, and that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and that I am seated with the heavenly Father in the heavenly places in Him above all rule and authority. And one day He's coming back to get me, and if I die first, I'm going to be with Him. Oh! Oh, you want me to not lie? Got it. In light of that? You want me to honor you with my life? To love one woman well? Got it. To love one man well? Got it. To give a part of all that I have away to you? Got it. Because of all that I've gotten, I haven't forgotten your goodness. Folks, for many of us and many of you, you've forgotten the goodness of God. Go back and taste it again. Preach it to yourself. Nourish your soul on it until it becomes sweet as honey. Behold Christ until you're overwhelmed by him. Stare at him. Look at him. Consider him. And then all of a sudden the Ten Commandments become, oh, I'll try. I won't do it perfectly, but oh, I'll try. And when I fail, oh, how thankful I am for Christ who was my law keeper. Because the law turns us to him. It doesn't save us. Derek Kidner said, if redemption itself is forgotten, faith and love will not last long. If redemption is forgotten, faith and love will not last long. So that's what we learn from history. We learn not to test God. We learn that repentance needs to be genuine, and we learn that we need to remember the goodness of God. So what? So what do we do with it? In a couple of minutes we have left, I'll tell you this. Instruct the children who are around you. Give it away to the generations around you. Pass it on. That's what this passage says. Give ear to my words. Learn these things Learn all of this. We will not, verse 4, hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. 
that we will teach the next generation to the children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and they will arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Folks, that is a directive, not a suggestion. That isn't something that we as individuals can adopt or not adopt. We can either obey it or disobey it. For God's saying, hey, guess what? Parents, when you decided to have a kid, I hope it wasn't to fill an empty space in your life. Because parents, kids fill that space, don't they? And then some. And you know what the role of a parent is? To pursue with passion your children's heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. To live in front of them a life that they look at and go, maybe I reject it now, but I pray that you have planted the seeds that one day after years of indifference, they will look back and go, I want what mom and dad had. I want the faith of my fathers. Uh, I want that beauty. And they come back to it. But at least give them something to want to come back to. Teach and train them. That's what parenting is all about. It says in Deuteronomy 11, that's all Asaph is doing, is telling us Deuteronomy 11 again. Teach your children. Teach them when they rise up and when they go to sleep. Teach them when they come in and they go out. Teach your children well. Crosby, Stills, Nash, they picked up on that. Teach them well. Teach them what you know. But here's the problem. Most of us don't know much to teach them. When our faith and our theological understanding and our Christian life is so thin that it is taught in a prayer before the meal, that's not much of passing it on to a generation. But parents, you need to have a strategy. You need to be intentional about these things. Our faith is not a private faith, friends. It is a faith to be shared with people around us. Folks, your children are looking at you, parents. I'm a parent. Our children are looking at us to see what a godly man is. To see what a godly woman looks like. To see what a godly marriage looks like. To see how mom and dad react when something catastrophic happens. They're looking around. But parents, you're not on your own. I want you to hear that. You're not on your own. You're a part of a church, the greater body. And we make vows to one another as covenant parents to say, we're going to help you raise your children in the love and admonition of the Lord. We're going to come alongside you. Because I'll tell you one thing about parenting. It is not for the faint-hearted. How many of you parents have had your hearts broken by your children? It's hard work. It'll drive you to your knees faster than anything else in this life. But it is so worth it. And the strength that comes to us in the midst of that, because quite honestly, I took home three boys with no manual. I don't know what to do. I'm doing what I think I'm supposed to do and what my dad taught me to do and he's not around anymore and so my granddad's not around anymore and I'm trying to figure all this out and Lisa and I are going, do you know what to do with this? I don't know what to do with this. And you know what I did? I went and found godly men. I said, what do you do? What do you do? How, how do I love these boys? And I had godly men in my life enough that when I didn't do something well, I can remember one instance in particular where this godly brother, older gentleman in my life, pulled me aside and said, be careful, you just shamed your son. Don't ever do that publicly again. Praise God for that chastisement. Say, ooh, 
I don't want to do that. And he turned me back. That's why we're together in this. We have to live life together. That's why deep community is such a value to us. That we want to grow in those ways so that these children can set their hope in God, not forget his works, and can obey his commandments. Now folks, this is not a recruiting tool for our children's ministry. It's actually an indictment of our children's ministry. We have to beg you to help. We can't find people to pour into our children's lives as a church. We've got to build this up. We've got to do this. It is to our shame, not to our glory, that we have to do that. And coming at VBS and seeing so many of you pouring into the lives of those children, be commended for that. It wasn't wasted effort to see those seeds being sown in the lives of those children. For you teachers who are faithfully serving, I want to commend you for that. But I would say to the rest of you, what are you doing? Share your faith with these next generations. Tell them about Christ. Learn in your own life these things. So parents, here's a promise from us, and I'm wrap up here. We are with you in this battle. We want to help you. We're going to be looking uh, this year and beyond of how we can provide resources for you to help you to train your children well. We're going to shape our children's ministries and students' ministries in such a way that we're pointing these next generations to Christ and the profound nature of who He is so that we can come alongside you, but we cannot and will not do it for you. The American Evangelical Church has adopted a belief that have a kid, drop them off at nursery, pick them up after college, and the ministries will take care of them all along the way. It's a joint effort of engaging together. And there's some resources that we have for you, and I'll end here. In a sales pitch, we don't make anything on any of this. But if you're looking for a parents, grandparents, if you're looking for a good Bible to have with your children, uh, it's the Jesus Storybook Bible. To read the Bible with your children so they see Christ in the Old Testament. It's an excellent resource for you. They probably aren't going to understand the King James. But they'll understand this. There's a book that, uh, called Understanding the Faith uh, by Stephen Smallman. And it's a great tool for parents to come alongside and to ask questions and to teach your children uh, these things. And so if you'd like a copy, I've got two that I'm willing to give away free. But only to people who are willing to use them. I don't want them along with whatever craft was done in children's church today on the bottom of your SUV. If you're willing to use it, I'll give you a copy of that. And the other one that I would uh, give to you, and we'll make sure these are in our resource center next week, uh, is by Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair Ferguson is one of the most profound minds of a theologian and of a pastor and preacher that I've ever heard, but he's a grandfather. And so he took all of that brilliance and boiled it down into two books, the big book of questions and answers and the big book of questions and answers about Jesus. And so these uh, will be available for you next week as well, just to be able to purchase. But get on Amazon and get them. Get tools in your arsenal to help teach and train your children. Because, folks, we need to learn and pass it on to them. Our children are dying to hear it from us. But you can't give away that which you don't have. So do you know the gospel well enough to share it and impart it? Let's pray.